All right. Well, we are uh, starting Genesis chapter 34 today. And uh, last week we uh, looked at the last part of chapter 33, about the last uh, dozen verses or so, and uh, which was kind of the tail end of the story of the reconciliation of Esau and Jacob, and uh, and then Jacob's uh, subsequent settling in the uh, back in the land of Canaan. And today we're going to pick up this story uh, of the events that unfold there at Shechem, which are not real, <coughs> not a real pleasant subject to deal with, but uh, they are uh, nevertheless important things to talk about. So we'll we'll look at that, but and. Uh, Initially, though, we'd like to take some time to review our lesson from last week. So there's only a few of you here, so you got to really prime the pump here <laughs> and tell me what did we talk about last week and what do you remember from our discussion last week? Jacob didn't really need Right. Uh, why didn't he need Esau? Okay. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <clears throat> so we talked. Uh, we talked a little bit about the different assumptions that people make depending on whether they are believers walking with the Lord or whether or not uh, they live in the world. And we talked about the <clears throat> different assumptions that people in the world make than the people the people of God make, uh, hopefully at least, the different assumptions. And the, <clears throat> the, uh, the thing that stands out, and one of the things that stands out in that passage are the assumptions that that Esau makes as a as a man of the world. What what are the assumptions that Esau makes? Okay. He, I mean that's just the way the world thinks. You gotta take care of yourself, right? And so he assumes that Jacob needs protection and so he offers that protection to him. Uh what else does he assume? Yeah, right. Okay, yeah. And that's an interesting thing, isn't it? The world sets this pace for us and then it just expects us to live by its pace. But we as people of God are responsible to set a pace that's appropriate for our own family and for our own needs and for our own spiritual uh, spiritual life and not let the world dictate to us the pace of our lives. What else? Yeah, yeah. He assumes they have the same destiny. And the world thinks that, doesn't it? I mean, the world just assumes that we're all going the same direction. And we all have the same values and we all have the same goals and we all have the same direction, uh, our objectives. And, and when we as believers go, well, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't share those values and I'm not headed in that direction. Sometimes the world gets a little upset about it. Fortunately, in the case of Esau, he was very understanding and and uh, uh, with, his, with his brother. But... Uh, <clears throat> But that's just the way the world thinks, and they just assume these things. And it's very 
easy for us as believers to just kind of fall into that trap, isn't it? The world just kind of puts its expectations on us and we just kind of go, well, okay, I guess that's the way I'm supposed to live. Instead of stopping and really evaluating our lives from a, from a, from a really a biblical, shall we say, worldview. What else? Where does uh, where does uh, Jacob eventually end up? Succoth. Okay, he goes to Succoth, and he's in, he's at Succoth for a period of time. We really don't know how long he goes to Succoth. I suggest that he may have only wintered there. It does say he built a house there, but that could have been a temporary dwelling. Uh, uh, some commentators think he may have spent as much as a couple years there. Uh, where was Succoth? It's north of the Jabbok and east of the Jordan River. Okay, so it's not in Canaan. It's outside of Canaan. So he's not when he's at Succoth, he's still not in Canaan. But what's the significance of it being north of the Jabbok River? Okay, okay. So he comes down and he takes his whole family, he and his whole family, cross the Jabbok River going south for the purposes of being reconciled with Esau. Because reconciliation is his top priority. So, once then he's reconciled with Esau, then he turns around and he goes back. He backtracks back across the Jabbok River up to Succoth where he apparently spends the winter or, or uh, however long he spent there. So, it really emphasizes how important this issue of reconciliation was to Jacob uh, with Esau. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. He wrestled with God on the north side. By that time, he had already moved his whole family across the river. So his family was on the south side during the night when he wrestled with God. And then he went across the river and encountered Esau and then comes back across the river afterwards. Yeah. So. Um, so then after Succoth, where does he go? He goes to Shechem. OK. And where is Shechem? Yeah, it's in the land of Canaan. So he's finally back in the land of Canaan. And uh, and once he's in Shechem, what does he do? Or at Shechem, I should say. Okay, he bought a piece of land. It says he says he camped before the city. So the picture we get is that he's actually camping right outside or he's located within within uh, at least eyesight of the city of Shechem. Now, we're going to talk about two Shechems today. There's the city of Shechem and there's the man Shechem. Okay, so don't get confused right now. We're talking about the city of Shechem. So he camps there and then ultimately he purchases the land that he's that he's pitched his tent on. So he now owns a piece of property. What else does he do there? He erected an altar and he called it what? Okay, which means God, the God of Israel. What's the significance of him naming the altar that? Yeah, this is really the fulfillment of the vow he made at Bethel. Okay, at Bethel, he told the Lord when he was leaving, uh, when he was leaving uh, uh, the promised land, 
uh, on his way up to Padanaran for his uh, 20-year sojourn in Padanaran. He said to God, he says, God, God came to him there in that dream at Bethel with the ladder and stuff and spoke to him and, and, uh, and made all these promises. I'm going to go with you and I'm going to protect you and I'm going to bring you back and all that sort of thing. And I'm going to multiply your descendants. And Jacob promised him, made a vow to him and said, if you do that, you will be my God. So now that he has come back safely in peace, it says to Shechem, he's come back. He's now in the land of promise again. It's now time for him to fulfill his vow. And so he erects this altar and he calls this altar God, the God of Israel, Israel. And uh, so so it's really a significant point. What what are. What is the significance of Shechem itself, as we've talked about both in the story of Abraham and now in the story of Jacob? Okay, Shechem really represents kind of a dividing line in, in our lives, okay, and in the life of Jacob, in the life of Israel, in the life of, uh, of Abraham. It's, it's really the point of commitment. It's the point of decision. It's the first point that Abraham comes to when he, when he, leaves, uh, uh, when he leaves Haran and, and comes uh, under God's direction, comes down to this land that he's going to show him, and he brings him down into Canaan. He comes into Canaan. He comes to Shechem. And then God speaks to him and shows him the land and says, this is the land I was talking about. This is the land I'm going to give you. And it's at this point then that Abraham erects his first, his, uh, first altar. And so Abraham erects an altar there at Shechem. It's the place of decision. It's the place that the entire nation of Israel is brought to in the book of Joshua. Uh, the whole nation of Israel is brought there and half the nation is put on one mountain and half the nation is put on the other mountain, the mountains of, of, of Ebal and Gerizim. And, and that whole uh, story there in the book of Joshua about the blessings and the curses, this, this kind of decisive dividing point, of, uh, kind of watershed event in the life of Israel occurs there at Shechem. And then a little bit later in the book of Joshua, we have Joshua 24 where towards the end of Joshua's life, he, he brings the nation of Israel back to Shechem. And we have that great speech there in Joshua 24 where he says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he's saying to Israel, You choose you this day whom you will serve. That occurs at Shechem. And then, of course, as we mentioned last week, there are some ugly things that happen at Shechem. One of the things we're going to talk about today. Okay, so there's some really... Ugly things. Uh, Rehoboam's foolish decision there about how he's going to rule uh, the nation after the death of his father is made at Shechem, uh, which ultimately leads to the rebellion of Jeroboam. And Jeroboam uh, assumes the throne of the northern nation, of the nation of Israel, uh, at Shechem. So Shechem just is loaded with significance. But in the context of our study of Genesis, the thing I've been trying to point out is that is that is that in a, in a, in a in a parallel picture of our spiritual journey, we have these three points in the life of Abraham. We have Shechem, Bethel, and the Negev, or the Sheba in Hebron and, and uh, the Oaks of Mamre, that area down in the south. And as, as I said, when we were studying the life of Abraham, to, to me, the place of Shechem represents that place of commitment, that place of decision in the life of Abraham. Then Bethel represents the... the uh, the place of a deeper walk with God. That's where Abraham, uh, it says, it says he first, uh, it's the first time it records this about Abraham. He goes to Bethel and he calls upon the name of the Lord at Bethel. And so we see that there's, there's some escalation, if you will, in, in Abraham's spiritual journey that occurs at Bethel. 
and then ultimately he goes uh, from Bethel. He travels down and he and he lives most of the rest of his life. He lives down in the southern part of the promised land down near Beersheba and, and Hebron and the Oaks of Mamre, that whole area uh, of the Negev and the southern part of Israel. And 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 that's where he lives 25 years just waiting for God to fulfill his promise. And when I think of Abraham living 25 years down there in uh, in uh, in the Negev and in the southern part of the land of promise, I I think about that that uh, verse in the Psalms where the psalmist enjoins us to to uh, live in the land and cultivate faithfulness. And that's what you see Abraham doing then for 25 years as he waits for God to fulfill this promise of giving him a son. And so so the southern part of Israel then represents living in the land and faithfully just in the mundaneness of life, being faithful to God and obedient to God and walking by faith and living by faith. So so I see those three places, uh, uh, Shechem, Bethel, and the Negev or Beersheba uh, as representing this, these different spiritual uh, milestones in our lives. And as I said last week, what we will find with Jacob is he follows this same pattern. When he comes back from Paden Aram, he comes first to Shechem. Ultimately, we'll see he goes on to Bethel. And then finally, he goes south to Beersheba to rejoin his father. So we see this same pattern in the life of Jacob. But it really, uh, while the, the same general pattern is followed, there are some marked differences that we're going to note today in the passage that we're looking at today. I better get, since the clock is down, I better get my watch out here where I can see what time it is. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, he comes to Shechem. And at Shechem now, he makes this commitment. Uh, he fulfills his vow. He erects Elohe Israel, uh, this altar that he erects and says, you know, God is my God and I'm here and I am committed to him. And uh, so it's this point of commitment. But things get a little strange at that point. And then we run into this story that we're going to run in today here in chapter 34. And over the next several chapters... Uh, there's going to be kind of a shift. We're still in the Taladot of Isaac. We're still in the story of the generations or the account of the generations of Isaac. And you remember that a Taladot uh, bears the name of a certain individual, but it's, re- but it's really about his descendants. Okay? So the Taladot of Isaac is really the story of Jacob and Esau. And we're still in that story. We haven't yet moved on to the Taladot of Esau and then ultimately the Taladot of, of Jacob, but those are coming within the next uh, couple chapters or so. So we're still in the Taladot or the account of the generations of Isaac, which you would think is would then would still be the story of Jacob and Esau. But beginning in chapter twenty, uh, chapter thirty-four, the focus of our story really shifts now, and it begins to focus on Jacob's sons, and so. So chapter 34, although it starts out talking about Dinah, the real thrust of chapter 34 is a story about Simeon and Levi. Okay? And it has significance for the whole nation of Israel, which we'll discuss some over the next couple of weeks. But ultimately, when we get to the end of Genesis, we'll talk more about that uh, as, as uh, we get towards the end of the story of Joseph. But, but, but we're going to go on and we're going to look at some of the other descendants or, or sons of Jacob, even before we get uh, into the Taladot of Jacob. And, and uh, we're going to look at Reuben. We're going to look at 
at Judah. We look at Simeon and Levi. And what we see is this is this really ugly picture of his sons. Okay, they they really kind of get completely off track Uh, and they do some really violent and wicked stuff. Okay, and and it's like God is. It's like God is saying to the nation of Israel out there in the wilderness as they're picking up the book of Genesis and reading it for the first time as Moses finishes the story and comes hot off the presses and they're and they're reading these stories, maybe hearing them for the first time if they've not been if they've not heard them uh, from their fathers or whatever. They're hearing these stories for the first time. And one of the things they're seeing is that their ancestors weren't all that cool. Their ancestors were pretty messed up. And so if God is really working in our nation, if God is really present with us, and if God is really leading us through the wilderness and leading us to a promised land, it's not because of anything good about us. It's not because of anything good about our ancestors, but it's because of His grace that we are where we are and we are going where we are going. And so that's kind of the thrust of the direction of the story as it unfolds. So we're going to have to, over the next few chapters, look at some really ugly stories. But they really do have significance to us and meaning to us. And the first really ugly story is this one we're going to look at today, which is the story of the rape of Dinah. Okay, so let's just pick that up and and read uh, just the first 12 verses of this story, which really is just the account of the rape and the immediate uh, immediate things that follow right on the heels of the rape of Dinah. And then next week we'll look more uh, at that, uh, at some of the long-term consequences. But in verse uh, 1 of chapter 34, it says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. Uh, before we read this, let me just encourage you to be asking yourself some questions as we read these verses. You know. What is he telling us here? What are some of the things that he seems to be emphasizing? And what are some of the things we don't see? What are some of the things that that it doesn't tell us? Okay, and I'll explain why I asked that question. So uh, starting over again in verse in verse one. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak to him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us and the land shall be opened before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me. 
but give me the girl in marriage. Okay, and that's really kind of interrupting the story right, right in the middle. But that's if we get that far, we'll be doing good today. So, um, so we have now uh, beginning there in, in uh, verse uh, one of thirty-four, we have the story of Dinah going uh, out to visit the daughters of the land. Okay, but we need to understand some things about timing here. <clears throat> it's it's apparent now that the the boys who were just young boys when Jacob first came back from Peyton Aram are now old uh, are now old enough to be out there doing things and as we'll see next week they're old enough to make decisions about their sister and they're old enough to go to war okay so the guys are now uh, the boys are now at least the older boys are now in their late teens or early 20s okay Dinah herself is well, we don't know exactly when Dinah was born because it doesn't tell us that but Dinah herself is probably somewhere between the ages of 13 to 16. Okay, so she's in her mid-teens. Now, that sounds pretty young for a girl to be getting married in our day, but it's not so young uh, within the context of, of that culture. So, uh, so she's somewhere in the, in the vicinity of her mid-teens. We know all of this because we know uh, approximately when Joseph was born. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Joseph was six years old when they returned from Paden Aram, and we know that Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. And that's after Jacob has gone from Shechem to Bethel and down to Beersheba. And uh, so we can, we can kind of place the time frame here, and, and we can deduce that this is now approximately 10 years after Jacob has left Paden Aram. So he left Paden Aram, he came down, he had his reconciliation with Esau, he spent an undetermined amount of time in Succoth, probably possibly up to two years. As I say, I think it was probably just a winter, but it could have been up to two years. And then he goes to Shechem and he has now spent uh, somewhere between eight to nine years in Shechem. Okay. Now, just right off the bat, what does that tell us about what's going on here? What was Jacob's instruction from the Lord when he was in Paden Aram about going back? And if you need to cheat sheet, you can look in chapter 31, I think it is, verse 3. Pardon? Okay, well, that's yeah, there is some there is uh, some issue about that, but that's not what I'm referring to right here. I'm talking about what God told him when he was in Paden Aram about going back and return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives. Okay, so his instruction is not only to go back to Canaan, but to go back to his relatives. Okay. And one of the things, of course, that implied was he needed to get reconciled with Esau. But what's the other thing it implies? Yeah, who's his other relatives? This is pretty obvious, folks. Who's, who's his other relative? Isaac. Isaac. Yeah, his father in Beersheba. Okay. 
So dad's down there in Beersheba. He's not yet gone back to his father. Okay. So he comes to Shechem. And if we kind of keep this analogy in mind, this parable in mind, or however you want to think of it, of Shechem, Bethel, and Beersheba, or Shechem, Bethel, and the Negev, if you keep that in mind, what we have is Jacob coming to this point of commitment, coming to Shechem and, and erecting Eliha Israel there in Shechem. But then he just stops there. He doesn't go any further. He doesn't go on to Bethel. Bethel is this great turning point in his life. Bethel is where he encountered God for the first time in his life and he got the promises of God. But does he go back to Bethel? No. He stays in Shechem. Does he go back to Beersheba? Does he go back to tell Dad I'm home and everything's cool and my brother and I are reconciled? Does he do that? No. He stays in Shechem. And he stays there not for a year or two years or three years, but he stays there for seven or eight or nine or ten years. He stays in Shechem. And, and, I, and I have to ask myself, what are the consequences of Jacob not fully following through on what God had told him to do? Well, one of the consequences, obviously, is the story here today. What happens with Dinah? But not only what happens here with Dinah, but the subsequent events that we're going to look at next week, what Simeon and Levi do. Okay, that all is a consequence of Jacob choosing to stay in Shechem rather than to go on and go on to Bethel and ultimately then on to to be with his father. In other words, he has now raised his family. He's raised his kids through these very crucial years of their young, their young years and then their teenage years. He has he has raised them. Not in the context of being around Isaac and Rebecca, if she's still alive. Not in that context of being raised around righteous people, but he has raised them, as the passage says, before Shechem. He has raised them in the, in, in, within, within sight of Shechem. And so what they have... What they're accustomed to, the world around them that they see, is not the world of Isaac and Rebecca and all that that implies, but, but he has raised his children within the worldly context of Shechem. Okay. Now, now, what strikes me about this is that Shechem was a good place to go to. It was a necessary place. It was a necessary place for Abraham, and it was a necessary place for Jacob. That place of initial commitment and consecration was crucial in the life of Jacob. It was crucial in the life of Abraham. It was crucial in the life of Israel. Okay. So it was crucial that he go to Shechem, but it was a tragic mistake to stay there. You see, it's by way of application, it's, it's, it's crucial that we come to these, these decisive points in our lives where we make real commitments to God and real decisions for God. But if that's as far as we go, we haven't gone far enough. It's not enough to make those initial commitments and obligations and responsibilities to God. But we've got to go on from there. As we say, Bethel represents that deeper walk with God, that deeper relationship with God. And, and Jacob, for some reason, doesn't go there. 
He doesn't go on. Now, eventually he will, as we'll see, but only after these tragic events unfold that actually drive him on to Bethel. And so my point is, in, in our lives, we, we can kind of go so far with God and we can kind of get to a point and God convicts us and we make some commitment or some uh, promise to him or whatever. But, but, but he wants us to go on from there. He wants us to go on to maturity and he's calling us on to spiritual maturity. He's calling us on to a deeper walk with him. But it's very easy in our spiritual lives to just get satisfied with where we are. And not to respond to that call of God to a deeper relationship. And, and as we see in the life of Jacob, that results in disobedience and it results in great peril, not only to himself, but to his family, to his children. And so it is in our lives when we don't respond to the call of God to walk deeper and deeper with him. To go on to Bethel, so to speak. When we don't respond to that, that is the first place, it is an act of disobedience. Because he's calling us to that. But the second thing is, is it really is a perilous choice to make. It really is a perilous decision to make to say, I've gone as far with God as I intend to go. And so, the outcome then is, then is what happens here with Dinah and what happens with Simeon and Levi. And, and I can't help but ask myself, where does Simeon, where, you, you, you probably know the story, we haven't read it yet, you know the story, they, how they act so violently here in the second part of the story that we'll look at next week. But I have to ask myself, where did they learn to be so violent? Where did they learn war like that? Well, they certainly didn't learn it from Jacob. There is absolutely nothing in Jacob's history that indicates that he's that kind of a man. Now, Jacob has his problems, but we see no evidence of violence in the life of Jacob. And we see no evidence of violence or any tendency to violence. In fact, we see just the opposite in the life of Isaac. We see that Isaac is a peace-loving man. And when he has conflicts, uh, when he had conflicts with the people of Gerar, he, he went out of his way to maintain peace with them. And so I have to conclude that in addition to probably it being an aspect of their temperament, that certainly that's at play there, but they must have learned to some degree that violent way of resolving conflict and resolving issues. They must have learned that by living among the Canaanites. They must have learned that by living within sight of Shechem. And they've grown up with that. And so this is how they understand things are to be dealt with. And I just, I just think, what kind, what kind of men would Simeon and Levi have been had they grown up under the influence of Isaac, their grandfather? But they didn't get that opportunity because Jacob didn't give them that opportunity. Well, in a similar vein, I have to ask myself, why did Dinah make the choice that she made? Now, there, there are several things about this passage, there are several kind of what I call interpretive flags. Because the question is, what, what do we do with this passage? How do we understand this passage? What is the point of this passage? Okay. Well, when we're trying to understand a passage, one of the things we, we need to ask ourselves is, what did the narrator, in this case, narrator is uh, Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, or, or when we're in the New Testament and we're reading, say, an epistle or something with a writer, 
what what was the writer trying to communicate? And the way they compose what they write or the way they compose the narrative, as in the case of Moses, is indicative of what they're trying to communicate. Okay, so the way Moses tells this story to us is an is an indication of what he wants us to understand about it. Okay, so there are certain things in this passage that serve as kind of interpretive flags to help us understand what are we supposed to get out of this passage. And uh, one of those interpretive flags is the issue of familial relationships. Look down through the passage and just Try to catch with your eye there. How many times is Dinah's relationship to Jacob mentioned? You notice that? It's mentioned over and over and over again. And you kind of go, Moses, what's your problem? (laughs) I know this. You told me in verse 1, this is Jacob's daughter. Why is it necessary to tell me seven times in the course of the narrative that Dinah is Jacob's daughter. I get that. Okay? I got it in verse 1. But over and over again, in various ways, he stresses to us that Dinah is Jacob's daughter. Okay? That's one interpretive flag. Another interpretive flag is she's not only Jacob's daughter, but she is also whose daughter? Leah's, okay? And that's pointed out to us in verse 1. It's only mentioned once, but it is an interpretive flag. It, it tells us something about how we should approach this passage and how we should understand this passage. This is not only Jacob's daughter, but it's Jacob's daughter by Leah. What's the significance of that? Pardon? Okay, it's his first wife. It's his unloved wife. Okay? And actually what it is, it's a flag of this problem that we're going to encounter in much more depth as we go on through the story. This, this ugly face of favoritism that raises its face here. Okay? And so to some degree what happens with Dinah and what unfolds in this passage is in some way related to the fact that she is Leah's daughter, not Rachel's daughter. Okay? And so that's something we should keep in mind. Now, let me ask you, as you look down through the first 12 verses, and actually you could look through the whole chapter and, and kind of get the same thing, but looking through those first 12 chapters, what do we know about Jacob from this chapter, from this, these verses? What is, what is Jacob thinking? What is Jacob doing? What, what action is Jacob taking? What is Jacob saying? He's totally passive. There's absolutely nothing in the passage about Jacob except... There in the one verse where it says when he hears about it, he decides he's going to wait for his sons to come in before he says anything. It's the only thing it tells us about it. And in fact, Jacob is completely silent through the entire chapter until we get to the very end and he finally speaks up. And he condemns not the action of Shechem and Hamor, but he condemns the action of his sons, which was certainly... uh, had merit to it. They need, their action needed to be condemned. But he condemns only them. He, he, makes no, he takes no leadership. He takes no action in this, in this crisis at all. Okay? So these are some of the interpretive flags that we want to we rely upon as we go through the chapter. Okay. Well, with those things in mind then, we have Dinah. And in verse 1, we're, told that she's, we're just simply told that she goes out to visit the daughters of the land. Okay. Sounds like, a political Sounds like what? A political 
Uh, Dinah's trip does. So you, you see this uh, 14, 15 year old girl as a politician. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, I hadn't thought about it in that light. Uh, actually, uh, Josephus, and I don't know where he gets this, but Josephus suggests that the ladies were having a festival. <laughs> and she was going out to enjoy the entertainment with the ladies, you know. What's, what's striking about this is who goes with Dinah? No one. She's alone. She's unchaperoned. This is an unchaperoned, virgin, teenager going out among the Canaanites, the Hivites. You know, it's not the kind of thing I'd want my daughters doing. <laughs> you know, not at that point. And it's Jacob's daughter. And it's Jacob's daughter, yeah. yeah. So, the question is, why does Dinah do this? Clearly what she's doing is foolish. It's dangerous. Now, you know, I don't know what her intention was with the daughters of the land. You know, I, I, I see it as it probably it was just a, a visitation thing. That's the way most of the commentators understand. I hadn't thought about it being kind of an emissary thing. But there's no indication that she was sent or commissioned. She just goes out. Okay. And the question is, why does she do this? Well, I don't know why she does it. But there are certain things that are clear is that she doesn't have the discernment not to do it. Now, whose fault is that? Her it's her parents' fault. Yeah. But, but wait a minute. <laughs> she raises the flag. Every parent has kids that are stupid things. I mean, there's just part of growing up. Yeah. All kids make mistakes. Yeah. And I think... I never thought about the, the implication politically. To me, young women seek the friendship and camaraderie of other young women. Yeah. Uh, but all young women and young men make stupid mistakes. Yeah. Yes, that's true. And, 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 I, and I shouldn't just assume here. It doesn't mean our parents yeah. are bad or negligent. They no. may have little ones. Yeah. They, they may have. But what we do see is that Jacob has already made a fatal decision. And his decision was to stay at Shechem. And so he's already made a fatal choice. And we now see he's also passive, at least in relationship with the children of Leah. And we'll see that more as we go on in the story. And so, and you're right, Ginger, you know, children often always do. Yeah, they still do. They make mistakes. They make bad choices in spite of the way we've raised them. Okay. And so that is true. But, But what is striking here is that is that she does make this foolish choice to go out among the daughters of the land, unchaperoned, in her vulnerable situation. Okay? And, and, and I would maintain that as, as, far as, the, as far as we go there, Dinah is culpable. Dinah has made a serious mistake. And she has, been, she has failed to discern the peril and the danger of going out and intermingling with the world under those conditions. Okay. But that's as far as I'm going to go with her culpability. Okay. That's as far as she's culpable. No more. Okay. But she goes out and she 
and she goes out to visit the daughters of the land, and what happens? Okay. So uh, Shechem uh, sees her, and he lusts after her, he wants her, and he desires her, and he takes her by force. He rapes her. Uh, now, one of the interpretive flags, I didn't mention this, but one of the interpretive flags here is we have a rape. And it's mentioned to us here in verse 2. And for the rest of the chapter, we deal with the consequences of the rape. But pretty much from this point on, the victim of the rape kind of slides into obscurity. I mean, she's kind of the point of all the debate and the discussion. But we don't really, we don't really know anything about this rape. We don't know what Dinah thought about it. We don't know what she experienced. You know, so there's a, there's a remarkable silence here in the passage about what today in our culture is the, is the biggest issue in the chapter, which is a woman's been raped. You know, that would just stop us there. You know, we wouldn't go any further. That's the big issue. And it is a big issue. The scripture makes it clear right here in the text. It makes it clear. That, that it is a defiling thing. It is a disgraceful thing. It is a thing that should not have been done. Okay? So, Scripture very clearly condemns the act. But that's about all we hear about it. And the question is, from an interpretive viewpoint, what is that telling us? Well, it's telling us that the real issue here, as far as the significance of the chapter and what Moses is trying to communicate to the sons of Israel and the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to us. The real issue here is not the rape. The real issue here are the things that follow the rape. Okay. That's not to say the rape is not significant. It's not to say the rape is not tragic. It's not to say the rape is not wicked. But it's not the narrator's point. The narrator's point is not the rape. The narrator's point is Jacob's response and the response of his sons because that has long-term implications for the nation of Israel. Okay? So, so that's one of the little interpretive flags. Why, don't, why doesn't Moses stop here now and, and discuss this whole issue of rape in detail? You know, if I were a feminist, you know, I would teach this chapter and all I would talk about is rape. Okay? But Moses doesn't focus on the rape. He focuses on the things that follow from the rape. Okay. So we've had a very horrible and wicked thing that's happened to Dinah. And Dinah is not culpable for the rape. She was culpable for decisions that she made that put her in a place of vulnerability. But she is a victim here. She is clearly only a victim. Okay. Well... Now, one of the other things that's really puzzling about this chapter is the complexity of the characters. When you're, when you're, reading, uh, when you're reading literature, novels or true stories or whatever, uh, but particularly take a novel, when you read a novel, one of the evidences of a good novel is the ability of the author to create complex characters because most of us don't think in those terms. When we see someone, we want to kind of oversimplify them. So if we see somebody who does something really bad, they're only bad. <laughs> or if we see somebody who does something really good, they're only good. And one of the things about Scripture that, that speaks to the truthfulness of Scripture is that the char characters in Scripture are so complex. 
that really, really good people like David and Abraham and Moses do really, really bad things. And really, really bad people in Scripture sometimes do some really good things. Yeah? And, and it really kind of upsets the apple cart for us, doesn't it? It kind of rattles our cage because we like to think in these simplified terms. But the characters of scripture, scripture oftentimes are much more complex than that. And Shechem is a very complex guy. How do you have a guy who at one moment rapes a woman and then for the rest of the chapter it's emphasized how much he loves her? Yeah. It's just a, it's, it's a paradox, okay? He's, he's a complex guy. He's done a really wicked, violent thing. But on the other hand, his soul is really attracted to her. It says he, he speaks tenderly to her. You notice in your footnote it says he speaks to her heart. So here's a guy who at one moment is able to treat a woman like, a, like an object or whatever. And, and at some point later, he's being very sensitive to what she's feeling in her heart. And he's trying to... Speak to what she's feeling in her heart. And I go, how do you put those two things together? But that's real life, folks. That's the way people really are. They're complex. Yeah, Ginger. I have a question. Yeah. Okay, when I read this, I, you know, you know, a little further advanced in the question, but um, she remained in his household. Yes. I, and my question is... Why? Well, he <laughs> taught me, yeah. you know... Uh, we don't know if she remained volitionally as a result of his sweet talk, <laughs> or if she was kept, um, I'm not allowed to leave. So, we don't know the answer to that question. I personally assume that she was kept, which makes the situation much more complex for Jacob. Because, you know, if he wants to resolve this issue, how does he resolve it if Dinah's still being kept against her will in Shechem's house? You know, We don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I wish I don't. <laughs> so, uh, that is a puzzling thing. And we'll deal with that some next week when we get to that. Uh, I don't know if we're going to get done with this passage this week. <laughs> okay. But, so, so, any rate, so we have this very complex guy, Shechem, who does this very violent thing, but then, but then he, really, he really apparently loves her. Now, you know, he doesn't love her with what we think of as agape love, you know. We don't, we don't want to go overboard here. But Scripture's pretty clear here. It doesn't want us to miss the point that he's really attracted to her. He really wants this woman, not just as an object, but as a wife. Okay? So, uh, so we, we, we see this. And, and so what does he do since he, since he loves Dinah? What does he, what does he do? Okay. So he asked Hamar, his father, to get Dinah for a wife for him. Okay. And uh, so that initiates then the, the following events that, uh, uh, of negotiation. And we'll get to those in a minute. But while that's being set up, this whole negotiation proposal type of thing gets set up, where the, the scene shifts back, uh, back to Jacob and, and, and the boys back home. Okay. And Jacob hears about this and he just goes, well, the boys aren't here, so I'm going to wait till them come. Now, to some degree, there's a reason for that. Uh, we saw this in, in the story of uh, the, uh, the uh, effort of Abraham's servant to secure a wife for Isaac. And he goes and he speaks to Bethuel and Laban there in Haran. And, 
And even though Bethuel is the father, Laban, the, the brother of Rebekah, is the one who really does the negotiation and stuff. So the, the point is that, that, is that uh, a woman's brothers oftentimes did play a significant role in, in, in the decisions that were made about <clears throat> their sister. So they, they, they were involved in those kind of decisions and they were responsible for their sister's protection along with the father being responsible. So there is, to some degree, some cultural reason here why... Uh, Jacob uh, defers or at least waits until his sons come in. But that's, that's, you know, that's the only thing we see Jacob do. The only thing, the only decision we see Jacob make is the decision to wait. Okay. We see no other decision from Jacob. We see no plan. We see no, uh, no leadership. We see, we don't see him saying anything till the very end. He doesn't, he doesn't utter a word that, that's recorded. Now, clearly, he must have said things, but nothing is recorded. He doesn't say anything of significance that's worth recording. Okay, so he he assumes this completely passive position in this very critical crisis. Now. Now, keep in mind, this is Jacob we're talking about, guys. This is the guy who, at the drop of a hat, can think of a clever way to get out of any predicament. Right? This is Jacob. Remember how he dealt with, with his brother when his brother came in from the field and, and, and he's there making the stew and his brother says, give me, the stew, give me some stew to eat lest I die. And Jacob just in an instant says, sell me your birthright. Just in a moment, he's got a plan. In a moment, he's got a scheme. It just comes right to him. Why? Because it's something he cares about. And then we get to the whole story of the, of the deception over the blessing. And he ends up there in that very tense situation with his father. And you remember, we go through that whole story, that whole thing. He's with his father and his father keeps prodding to find out, is this really Esau? Is, you know? And Jacob, just at the drop of a hat, is thinking of these, you know, of these, just the right thing to say to deceive his father. This is a guy who thinks on his feet. He's, and he's clever and he's sharp and he knows how to deal with predicaments. And then he gets up there to pay Naram and he has one bad encounter there with uh, Laban when Laban deceives him about, uh, about Rachel and Leah. But after that, he's on his toes. And every time Laban changes his wages, he, Jacob's got a plan. Now we get into this crisis of all crises and he can't come up with a plan. He can't think of what to do. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know what he should have done. I only know one thing I think he should have done. This is a guy who ten years before wrestled with God and prevailed. So that's the only thing I know he should have done. Beyond that, I don't know what he should have done. Okay? I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know the culture well enough. Speak to his daughter. Hello. How's he going to speak to his daughter? Well, She's wrong. <laughs> well, I... I can suggest there are all kinds of things he could. I don't know what would have worked. And I don't know under the circumstances what he should have done. But clearly, he should not have done what he did. Which was, he let it go. Now, why did he do that? It's not clear. I was wondering if the, the guy came to see him, the second responder, to talk to him about marrying him. And it's not clear whether... 
the boys overheard that, it says when they heard of that, whether they overheard that conversation or whether Jacob told them what happened. Well, doesn't it say he spoke to his father and to the brothers? It does at some point. I know that. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Verse 11. I don't have my name. Okay. Here we go. Uh, before that. But that may be later on when he first came out there. It's not clear. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. That doesn't help. Okay. He went out to Jacob and spoke with Peter. Yeah, he went out to speak with Jacob. Yeah, that's not real clear, but at some point it does become clear that they're together. But I don't know if they were initially. Yeah. Did you have a point you wanted to make on that? I was wondering oh, okay. whether he even told them about it and said, here, guys, here's what happened. Yeah. They just heard it. Yeah. Well, and some commentators think they just heard it by gossip, that, that Jacob didn't even really send the word out to them. But, uh, but we don't know for sure. That's not real explicitly clear from the text. So that's a, that's a good point, Mike. Uh, but uh, the thing that's striking about Jacob here is is that he's so passive in regard to Dinah. Now I want to ask you, reading ahead in the story, <laughs> if that had been Joseph, do you think he would have been that passive? <laughs> See, there's there's the significance of that flag back in chapter one. This is the daughter of Dinah. This is favoritism at play. He's just not invested in her. Or, <laughs> or is he so traumatized by what he's heard that and so much you hear bad news and you just well, that's a, well, that's, that's a possibility. That's a possibility. It'd be pretty unusual for Esau because Esau is, I mean, Jacob, because Jacob's the kind of guy that, you know, in pretty intense emotional things like that whole deception with his father thing, he's able to think, you know, yeah, this is, yeah, this is different. But then why does he make a point that this is Leah's daughter? And that's, that's my point. That's, that's where we have to pay attention to the interpretive flag. That's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I'm wondering too if it's not an economic thing. The fact that he's trying to figure out, okay, this is the city where I live. These are the heads. I mean, this is not just some football from the city. This is the prince and son of the city. Yeah. So we're going to have a whole war for the city, and either I this boils over, or I may have to move out of here. Yeah. And ultimately, that's what happens. He has to move out. Yeah. Well, that's why I say I don't know what he should have done aside from the fact that he should have gone on his knees and prayed. He should have said, God, this thing's over my head. And you bailed me out from Laban and you bailed me out of Esau. What are you going to do in this situation? But there's no mention of God in this passage. God is not consulted. God is not looked for. And, and, and uh, you know, I didn't really think about that aspect that you brought up, Ginger, but I think that's true. Sometimes we do. We are so emotionally overwhelmed by situations that it, it renders us impotent. But if that's the case, that's still a fault on Jacob's part. He still had a responsibility. But think of Dinah. If you're a girl who is raised and you are being held captive, perhaps we don't know, in the household, to me, I would keep thinking... My daddy will come and get me. But daddy never did. That's right. Daddy never did. And I think the reason daddy never did was because she was a daughter of Leah. Yeah. You mentioned that she was 
Yes. Of the rape. Right. Yes. I think she I think she I think she is culpable for the decision she makes that puts her in danger. But uh, they are not culpable for the rape. And that's and this is why this is why I think it's important for us to realize the rape is not the issue in this chapter. But I think the, the problem here is what makes this passage difficult is not what we read. The information that we don't, don't have. Exactly. Yes. 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 Yeah. It sounds obvious when you read this. There's a lot of other things going on in the Yes. I do agree with you. For me, the first thing that should have happened when Jacob heard that is he should have said to Shechem, his father, Haman, I want her here. Yes. Yeah. And then when she gets here, then we'll talk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and those are all viable things. But, but, but what we need to keep in mind is that what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us here is not something about rape. It's about some other things. Okay? <laughs> Pardon? There are some get past that. Yeah, well, yeah, that may be. But we're going to get past it. If we don't get past it today, we will next week. Okay? Because I'm not going to leave this part of the passage uh, until we wrestle with this. Okay? Is that... Is that as, as because, because in our culture, and, and probably in their culture too, rape is such a big thing that, that oftentimes when we come to this chapter, what happens is we just stop there and we don't think past that. But... But the Holy Spirit inspiring Moses has, has really put the rape itself on the back burner and caused us to focus on the things that happen after the rape. Because those are the real issues that have implication for Israel and for Israel's future, and they also have implication for us and for our lives. Okay. And so, so we can wrestle with these questions about rape, and they are important questions, and they are important issues to resolve at some point in our thinking. But they're not going to help us understand what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us from this passage, I would suggest. Okay? So, so Moses, excuse me, so Jacob doesn't act. But when his sons come back and they find out about it, what is their reaction? Before we go on to the next chapter, the next last part of the chapter, what is their initial reaction? They are grieved and they are angry. Okay? Now, first of all, would you notice this? That it tells us the emotions of the sons, but it doesn't tell us anything about the emotions of the father. Is that not an interpretive flag? I mean, if, if, 
if something like this happened to one of my daughters and somebody wrote the story about it, and they talked about the emotional reaction of my children, my other children, but they didn't say anything about my emotional reaction, what would that say? So here are these sons, and they are hurt, and they are angry. And here's where the devastating impact of Jacob's passivity takes effect. Because if Jacob acts righteously here as the leader of the clan, as the patriarch, as the father, if he acts righteously, if he acts courageously here, he can channel this very legitimate emotion that his sons are feeling into a righteous direction. But he doesn't do that. He instead is passive. And because he is passive, the emotional reaction of his sons is undirected. And it defaults to the flesh. It's, it's not their emotion that's wrong. It's what they do with their emotions that's wrong. And what they do with their emotions happens in a, in a leadership vacuum. Jacob has not acted righteously and led righteously in this area. Now, you and I, we all have temptations to being passive. In various situations, we encounter situations, and sometimes they may be so overwhelming we don't know what to do or whatever. And, and, and particularly for us guys, I think sometimes, our default position is passivity. That's just what we default to. I had a situation come up recently and, uh, and, and, it, and it just called me to action. It called me to do something, okay? But it was going to take some time to do and it was going to take some, some logistics and stuff to do it. And, 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 and so in the process of kind of waiting on time to be able to do the things that I knew God wanted me to do in this situation, as time progressed, I was more and more tempted just let it slide. Just, you know, Rick, you know, it doesn't involve you. It's not you. It's none of your business. You know, uh, it's not going to make any difference what you do, you know. And it's been, you know, it's been so much time now. And the temptation was just let it slide. That's just my default position. <laughs> Unfortunately, the Lord just kept hammering on me and saying, Rick, no matter how long this takes, you've got to do this. You know, you've got to, you've got to act in this thing, you know. And, and by God's grace, I did. But, but guys, we've got to watch that default position that just says, uh, it'll all work out. Or, this is over my head. I can't handle this. And that's what happens with Jacob. And when he does that, he creates a leadership vacuum he creates a plan vacuum and the plan then gets formulated by his intensely emotional and immature sons. And the, and the results are actual, absolutely devastating and results in the death of countless people because Jacob does not lead in this case. Well, we didn't quite finish this passage, so we'll finish the story about about these negotiations and the implications of this proposal that these two men make. Uh, and then we'll, we'll go on and we'll talk about the reaction of uh, Simeon and Levi and what happens there next week. So, okay.